Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Privet, and welcome to the Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. Russia is being convulsed by some of the most serious pro-democracy protests in its recent history, all triggered, at least in part, by the return to Russia and subsequent highly questionable trial of key opposition figure and recovered Novichok target Alexei Navalny. On his return to Russia, Navalny was sentenced to two years, eight months in a prison colony for violating probation terms of a conviction in 2014, which he claims was politically motivated. Now, Russia's prisons are reported to be packed after weeks of arrests at violence protests. Poland, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are demanding sanctions against Russia over this, and Putin has expelled diplomats from Germany, Sweden and Poland for allegedly attending the protests. What is going on? Is Vladimir Putin, long the most immovable figure in world politics, finally teetering? To help explain, I'm joined by Luke Harding, Guardian journalist and author of the brilliant book Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem and Russia's Remaking of the West. Hello Luke, thanks for joining us. Hi, Andrew. Very good to be back on your uh, wonderful podcast. It's a pleasure. Um, First up, what does the jailing of Navalny mean? It seems immensely kind of almost gratuitously harsh to immediately imprison him the moment he turns up. The message is not only can we uh, put you in prison immediately, but we will make it absolutely clear that we've trumped up the charges and we simply don't care. Yes. I mean, I think that the the Kremlin of Vladimir Putin has, has been debating vacillating you might say for a long time about what to do with Navalny I mean Navalny has been quite a big figure in Russian politics for at least a decade I I met him when I was there as the Guardian's correspondent back in 2011 shortly before I was kicked out of the country and back then he was uh, a sort of campaigner a blogger um, an anti-corruption activist who came to kind of prominence because essentially he was sort of shining a light on corruption not not just by Putin but but by his friends who practically own all of Russia's strategic enterprises, oil, gas, and so on. And his following got bigger and bigger. He he did, he does the, I mean, he, I, I suppose past tense did these terrific video exposés. I mean, the most famous, the one he did recently at Putin's palace has been seen more than a uh, hundred million times, but he did, he did others as well. There were various cases against him. He was arrested. He was released. His brother was jailed for three years. Uh, someone attacked him and half blinded him with gunk in his eye. And then, and then eventually, I think last year, exasperated, really fed up with the Navalny problem. It, it seems pretty clear that Putin authorized a secret op- operation by his FSB spy agency to have Navalny killed. And of course, as we now know, thanks to the work of Bellingcat, the, the open source investigative guys, 
that didn't work. He, he survived. He was poisoned by his underpants, it seems. He spent five months in Germany recuperating. And at that point, when he was there off a ventilator, the, the Kremlin made it very, very clear that if he, if he were to fly back to Russia, he'd be immediately arrested. And I think their calculation was that he would back down, he would live in Europe, he would be a critic from the sidelines, and slowly but surely he would lose relevance because it's very hard to be a Russian politician if you're not actually in Russia. Uh, and then Navalny basically kind of called Putin's bluff. I, I watched him. I mean, it was live streamed by, by by Russian news networks. I watched his return. There were dozens of journalists with him. He flew back from Berlin to Moscow. And I have to say, it's one of the bravest things I've seen in, seen in my life. I mean, he, he, he flew back. Uh, his plane was diverted. He landed. And no one quite knew what was going to happen. He got as far as passport control, where there were eight uniformed officers waiting for him. Uh, and there's this really poignant moment where he just gives his wife Yulia, a kiss goodbye on the cheek and sort of disappears almost into blackness. And even then, he keeps going. I mean, a couple of days later from custody, this Putin palace video is released. He's been on trial and he continues to kind of to snap at Putin's heels, to, to insult him, to get under his skin. The Kremlin is very, very, very angry, angry with Navalny, and I think determined to crush the the protest that we've seen in Russia um, over the last three weeks. Does Navalny have a plan? Because, as you say, we're flying back to Russia when he was, as far as we know, poisoned either on or before a pl- uh, before he boarded a plane from Tomsk to Moscow in 2020. It seems bold and a statement. Does he have a plan? He does have a plan, um, or a plan of sorts, I, I would say. I mean, I was chatting with uh, Leonid Volkov, who's Navalny's right-hand guy in exile currently um, in Lithuania. And I said, sort of said, you know, Leonid, where does Navalny's superhuman bravery come from? And he said, well, yes, he is brave, but but actually it's quite rational from Navalny's point of view. I mean, he, he genuinely thinks that the opposition, which which he now leads, is historically destined to prevail over what he regards as, as a group of, of gangsters, of thieves, crooks, and aging KGB men now in their middle 60s, whose moment has passed. So th- that is an analysis, and, and he bases this on, on the fact that his supporters are young, they, they're younger than their enemies inside the Kremlin, they're smarter, and that they'll get there. But I mean, Volkov also sort of recognised that it may be that Putin goes on for a while, it may be, as he said to me, that, that Putin crawls on for another 10 years, but he, he thinks that they will triumph. And, and certainly Navalny has has been like an electric shock. I mean, he really has roused a lot of people who are normally pretty apathetic, uh, which is part of their sort of Soviet conditioning and legacy, quite stoical, has roused them to to protest in freezing conditions and to risk being arrested, jailed, um, and beaten up, as we, we've seen on TV in recent days. This is all taking place against the backdrop of economic and political paralysis, as far as I, I, I can see as well. I, mean, I was reading Tatiana Stanovaya in the FT this week, saying that Russia's effectively has destabilised itself from within, and that Putin has been spending all his time on geopolitics while succeeding day-to-day governing to uh, what she calls a group of faceless technocrats. So is, is it ultimately, is it the economy stupid that is beginning to drive that wedge between the populist appeal of Putin? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, it, it's the economy stupid. Living standards have been declining for the past five years and the euphoria following the uh, annexation of Crimea in 2014 has, has worn off. That, that sugar rush has, has gone. And it's also corruption. It, it's the fact that Putin and his friends, most of them, not all of them from the KGB, but generally from a similar background, have been stealing on a quite cosmic scale for a very long time now. I mean, they are hugely rich. I mean, the reason that the Putin's palace video clocked up more than 100 million views is is because of the sort of tawdry ludicrousness of, of Putin and people like him. I mean, yachts, palaces, Swiss bank accounts, mistresses, property empires ranging from London to the south of France to New York and so on. The palace is astonishing. It's this kind of opulent supervillain lair on the on the Black Sea, which contains, amongst other things, a hooker bar with retractable stripper pole, a video game arcade, and an aqua discotheque with a swim-up bar. This is kind of Tony Stark-level indulgence. How uh, This has gone down badly in poverty-stricken Russia. Y- yes. I, I mean, it, it's a it's a naff Bond lair. It, well, when I say Bond <laughs> lair, sort of, you know, the baddie from James Bond, not Bond yeah. himself. I mean, Bond's actually got quite good taste, but it is super tacky. And... Yeah, as you say, uh, underground hu- ice rink. I think you forgot to to, to mention the. How Henny, could I forget uh, that? Yes, Vineyard, the view of the Black Sea, um, the the tunnel. Also, bear in mind it's it's got its own no fly zone and is guarded permanently by the Federal Migration Service. I mean, it clearly doesn't belong to just um, anybody. And what's interesting is there are two things from the palace which have really become memes in Russia. One is the aqua disco. I didn't even know what an aqua disco was but apparently it is a thing and i want to go to it i don't know what yeah, it is yeah, but yeah, i want yeah, to go yeah. to it and, and the other thing is the 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 um gold cutted loo cleaners which cost 850 dollars each <laughs> and there's a lot of really terrible italian frenchified furniture it's there's a kind of neoclassical vibe going on uh that's been ordered as well and uh, the, i mean it, it's a monstrosity and the point is that this palace and the other palaces belonging to the russian elite they're, they're not created from labor enterprise and so on they're, they're, they they come from the fact that uh, a small section uh, of the population know vladimir putin work with him in the kgb know him from st petersburg in the 1990s and they're part of this uh, sort of corrupt brotherhood you might say um and this is what navalny points out he's basically saying the emperor has got no clothes i mean he, he called putin last week a thieving little man in a bunker don't knock bunkers don't be mean about bunkers jesus Thieving little man in a bunker and, and Vladimir the poisoner of underpants. He said that's how <laughs> history is going to remember him, not as Vaslav the Vladimir the Great or Vladimir the Wise, but Vladimir the poisoner of underpants. It's this mockery, this painful, sardonic kind of sticking in of the dagger that I think infuriates Putin. Because on, on some, some level, I mean, goodness knows what goes on inside Putin's head, but on some level, Putin and the people around him know that this critique is true. What is so strange about it, though, is, you, you know, you're right. This is Peter York dictator chic, isn't it? Nasty, gold-trimmed rubbish. Not what one associates with the supposedly ascetic Vladimir Putin that he likes to project. You know, this this guy likes to ride bears, supposedly. He doesn't like to splash around in the aqua discotheque. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, if you look at Navalny's video, and and by the way, it's easy to find on YouTube, and it, it it's dubbed, so so you don't have to speak Russian to look at it. I mean, he traces his whole career, and essentially, the portrait that Navalny paints of Putin is of a grifter, of a, of a petty bureaucrat who went after the Soviet Union collapsed, and 
he was looking for a job, became an aide to the mayor of um, St. Petersburg, and immediately started demanding bribes, writing numbers, you know, 25 in dollars on a napkin, $25,000 is the amount he had to be bribed. I mean, that was back then. And and now he and his his proxies, because formerly, of course, you know, Putin's wealth is not Putin's wealth, but the people who, who sort of hold his wealth for him and his assets for him, I mean, they're, they're worth many hundreds of billions of of, of dollars. I mean, more, more than uh, Elton Musk, more than Jeff Bezos, certainly more than you and me, Andrew. They're very, very rich. And it's this kind of, this this greed, but not even, not even sort of clever greed, but re- really kind of banal greed that I think Navalny has exposed and, and which has really infuriated people who, as you say, are suffering and broke and hard up at a time of pandemic a time of cold, and after a period really of political stagnation where they are seeing the same faces, one face in particular, night after night on their television screens. Circling back to those protests, how, how strong is the opposition in, in, in Russia now? In, in, so, you know, we're, we're, we're not used to imagining that there is any particular strength of opposition politics. They have no access to the media or the courts. You've described how Navalny has used um, digital media a lot, but you know how strong is Russia's op- opposition? It's a good question. I mean, I think what's changed is that Navalny has genuinely become a national figure in Russia, despite, as you say, being blacklisted, banned from TV, or, or if he does appear on TV, it's to smear him. Paradoxically, what what the Kremlin has done in recent years is is it's driven other opposition figures out of the country. People like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the jailed oligarch, who's now in London. Or Gary Kasparov, the, the former World Chess Championship champion who who fled and now lives in Croatia, or, or, or they've been murdered. People like Boris Nemtsov, who was a former deputy prime minister turned turned major liberal opposition figure, who was shot dead outside the Kremlin in 2015. And so Navalny is the last person standing. I think you can exaggerate his support. It would be wrong to suggest that all Russians support him. They don't. I mean, Putin is still very popular, but. His name recognition has grown and his ratings have grown. I mean, he, he, I think 20% of Russians would vote for him. But bearing in mind that those kind of opinion polling exercises are pretty moot in Russia, because if someone rings up, you don't know, and, and says, would you vote against Vladimir Putin? You don't go, duh. duh Who's asking? Yes, of course. <laughs> because you know what, what, what that, that, that means. So, but what we have seen in recent weeks, last three weeks, January 23rd, January 31st, is we've seen the biggest street protests um, since 2011-2012, which which followed Kremlin election fraud. And we've also seen a sort of geographical spread that we haven't seen before, about 180 towns and cities all across Russia. There were even people demonstrating in Yakutsk, in, in the Far East, in minus 50. I was actually talking to a photographer from Yakutsk yesterday who was there. And the images are are, are of whiteness. It looks like a snowstorm. You can see a small group of people protesting, surrounded by a small black-white group of police. (laughs) And if you can can get people to protest in minus 50, then it means you are cutting through. Yeah, they feel pretty strongly about it. I mean, on on that issue of approval ratings, even though, I mean, I wasn't aware they had approval ratings in Russia. I I thought in Russia, state approves you, you know, but he has been registering low figures, record lows last year. How strong and secure is Putin really, do you think? Well, I I mean, it would be lovely to say that, like in a Hollywood drama, that the good guys will prevail, that there'll be a a peaceful uprising, that the the security state will yield, that the Omon riot police will hang up their truncheons and start taking flowers from the crowds. 
but I don't see that scenario. I mean, you, on the one hand, you've got a group of quite often middle class, not only middle class demonstrators, sort of educated people, uh, people who listen to podcasts, by the way. Uh, and on the other hand, you have a vast sort of corrupted bureaucracy and, and, and a pretty loyal uh, security apparatus, people who follow orders and do what they're told. And I, I don't see Putin and the people around him being ready to relinquish power, or even really share power. Uh, and I think what they will do is what they've always done in these situations, which is to rely on force solutions. And the fact that the Kremlin completely dominates all of Russia's institutions, whether it's TV, the judicial system, prosecutors, politics, uh, and so on. So I think more opposition activists will be jailed on, on basically fake charges. Navalny will stay behind bars and the regime will try and do what Alexander Lukashenko in next door Belarus is, is trying to do, which is just, just to tough things out and eventually detain enough people, decapitate the opposition that the protests go away. But for all that, I mean, nothing lasts forever. Where, where do you think we are in the Putin cycle? I mean, Putin himself kind of rose without trace. A trace almost appeared out of nowhere to those of us who aren't looking closely as suddenly the most powerful man in the world. Whereabouts is that arc? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and we've been thinking about it. I've, I've been writing about it for The Guardian for, 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 I guess, more than a decade now since I was in Moscow on and off because Putin actually did a spell as prime minister before coming back in uh, 2012 as president uh, uh, again. And while he was prime minister, there was was speculation that maybe he was heading for the door. But but now he he is, in effect, he's a dictator, actually. I think we can use the D word. It's a personist regime. It's it's a a one-man show. There's no obvious successor. I mean, Putin is not planning on retirement because he understands absolutely the nature of the system that he's created, that were he to step down, there are no guarantees that for his safety, for his assets, for his family, uh, and, and so on. So so he's there forever. Having said all that, I mean, he's in his mid-60s. There have been rumours during the rounds. None of them substantiated that he may be ill. He's certainly quite isolated. I mean, I think that's, that's true. Informationally isolated, cut off from what's going on, living in a world of paranoia and KGB fantasy where these protests in Russia are not organic. They're not caused by anything the regime is doing, but are are basically organized, plotted by Western spies, by the CIA, by MI6, you know, probably by me, by you, by your listeners. (laughs) By big podcast, yes. By big podcasts, (laughs) you know, the the deep, dark podcast state, et cetera. (laughs) Um, And uh, so who knows? I mean, who knows whether there'll be kind of you know, intra-elite moves against him or uh, attempt to kind of bring in a few new fresh faces. But as I said before, it's it's a tired old show. And I think a lot of Russians increasingly are fed up with watching it. Do you think the arrival of Joe Biden changes any of this? I mean, Trump was so servile. Biden, we don't yet know exactly what his posture will be, but it will, will not be as groveling as Trump's was. It, it depends on the Biden administration's willingness to sanction oligarchs who are close to Putin. And, and the point is that if you're a billionaire in Russia and you're still in Russia, you're not in exile, then it's not like being a businessman. It's not like being Richard Branson or, or whoever. It means that when the phone rings and someone from the presidential administration or, or, or God forbid, Putin himself gets on the line and asks you to do something, you don't hesitate, right? You do it immediately because, because your money, your assets, your, your everything is provisional. 
you, you're sort of banner within that system. And so a lot of oligarchs for a long time, uh, you know, in the West, they hire lawyers to say um, that they're, they're, they're businessmen, that their fortunes are independently made, et cetera, et cetera. And back in Russia, of course, they, they play the game because they understand from, for example, what happened to Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who spent a decade in jail, that if you defy Putin, I mean, Khodorkovsky was Russia's, Russia's richest person at one point, then some very nasty things can happen to you. And so... Will Biden sanction these people? Will he, there's a, a Navalny list of 35 individuals, oligarchs, Kremlin figures, corrupt judges, or will they issue words of condemnation? The words of condemnation don't do much. They don't cut it. But if there is targeted sanctions against the billionaire elite, I'm, I don't know if that will bring political change, but it will certainly cause pain in Moscow. Mm. You write in the book about the degree to which Russia has infiltrated Western society all the way from high politics to social media, you know, to business, to football. It's, it's how Russia has shaped the West, you know, with the aim not of defeating and bringing down democracy, but simply of, of, of making us the same as them, dragging us down to Russia's level. Twelve months after you published it, uh, do you think we're still on that trajectory? Has, has the removal of Trump lapsed that boil? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just actually in the process of writing an updated epilogue for shadow state but i mean uh, at the risk of sounding self-congratulatory and a, a, a bit of a bit of a twit i sort of ended that the, the last edition was saying that this this shadow monster of the russian security um services despite the the stumble over the poisoning of sergey skripal was on the rampage still and as deadly as ever and Basically, two months after the book came out, this FSB kill squad tried to poison Navalny with Novichok, which is basically Navalny is my kind of last new uh, chapter. So, of course, Putin will carry on. I mean, he he understands these methods. He likes them. He is a master of conspiracy and of lying with a straight face. I mean, he, he sees deceit as a weapon. You, you lie to Angela Merkel, you lie to Boris Johnson, you disconcert the, the Europeans, whom he regards as a kind of weak, credulous, hesitant bunch. Um, and, and that sort of, it's sort of weaponized lying almost. So that will carry on. So when they say, you know, we have a perfectly fair judicial system, Mr. Navalny unfortunately broke the rules, you know, blah, 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 blah. They don't expect you to believe them. They expect you to get the message that we we are the masters here. We can do whatever we want. We'll poison our dissidents. We will jail our traitors. Uh, we will kick out European diplomats, which is what happened over the weekend. And, and we will, of course, you know, UK, by the way, will meddle in your elections and, you know, bring on the Scottish referendum because it's pretty clear that the Kremlin wants UK breakup, Scottish secession, anything, frankly, to, to diminish... London politically, economically, militarily, which is why they were so all in for Brexit. So yeah, we'll see more of this. Luke Harding, thanks so much for joining us. It is, as ever, illuminating and terrifying to have you on. Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem and Russia's remaking of the West is out now and it is jaw-dropping. Luke, is there any prospect of writing the West's remaking of Russia one day? Well, I mean, I mean, this this is already how Vladimir Putin's brain processes the world. I mean, I mean, we're, we're all part of this swirling amorphous uh, conspiracy. You, Andrew Harrison, may be running a podcast, but obviously, actually, you're a, you're an MI6 operative, probably infiltrated years ago into the world of TV and media. I don't know, but I think at the moment, Putin, the people around him, are embattled, and they are going to play nasty and play hard just because so much money is at stake, more than you and I can possibly even conceptualize.
I'm under such deep cover that I don't even know that I'm an agent, but I will not be visiting Salisbury at any time soon. <laughs> listeners, thanks for listening. Luke, thanks for joining us. Listeners, if you have a moment, please do give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts if you like. And if you'd like to support the show, search Patreon Bunker Podcast, sign up, you'll get the show early, plus mugs, t-shirts, and all kinds of good stuff. Thanks for listening. Until next time, crochet, povieda, democrati. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Intelligence Asset number 12808. Uh, sorry, by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.